you're listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast. I'm your host, Paula Mazza, and together with my producer and husband, Jamie, we're exploring conversations about mental health, faith, and the importance of presenting our most honest and authentic selves when it comes to life in community. No tidy bows here, just real talk about real life in real time. This conversation is ongoing, and we are so glad you have chosen to be a part of it. So take a deep breath, settle in, and enjoy today's episode of Grace in Real Time. Paula. Hey, Jamie. Just switch things up a little bit. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Caught me off guard there. Well, you know, this is the season finale of the first season of your podcast, Grace in Real Time. Yep. Can you believe it? I can't. It's bittersweet for me. You know, as I said, the very first episode, this has been a long time coming. And this is something that's been building up in my heart for couple of years. And so now to have, this is our eighth episode under our belt. I am so loving these conversations and I love that we have this opportunity to share these conversations with other people. And we're getting some great feedback too. Well, I have to say that I'm super proud of what you have accomplished through this podcast. You know, this was your brainchild going back a year and a half ago, we started talking about it and planning for it. So to see it come to fruition and eight episodes and a first season completed, that's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. And I'll tell you again, listeners, you have to know that while, yes, this came out of my brain, Jamie is the one that makes it sound good. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very thankful for partnership on this. And I'm so thankful for our listeners. Like I said, we've been getting some great feedback. I really am blown away by the stories I hear by people who have listened and reached out. In fact, I just recently had somebody reach out and say, hey, I just listened to episode one and I was so moved by Mike's talking about his mom and what's going on with his mom and dementia. And the person who reached out to me actually wanted to know how Mike's mom was doing. (laughs) And I thought that was very sweet. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you've got a great conversation again with um, someone actually that you've never met. Yeah, I've never met in person. So James Powell is actually an old friend of mine, a dear friend from years and years and years of preteen ministry. But we live on separate coasts and we've actually never met in person, which is pretty funny to call somebody a dear friend, but I've never actually seen him face to face. I have no idea how tall he is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's going to change this week, right? It is. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and I hope to actually see him in person the day after tomorrow. So I'm excited. All right. Well, let's get to it. Well, hey, James. Hi, Paula. How are you? I am doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you. You know, I have to tell our listeners, this cracks me up. You and I have been friends for years now. Yes. (laughs) And we have even taught conferences together. Yes. (laughs) And yet, to this date, 
We have never met in person. We have not. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> what kind of a world are we living in? A Zoom-filled world. <laughs> That's right. But the good news is there yes. is hope. It's quite possible that in just a couple of weeks, you and I yes. will actually get to see each other in person. I am so looking forward to that. Yes. Me too. Great. Well, give our listeners a little context. Who is James Powell? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is James. <laughs> I am a preteen director and a youth director at my church, the Tabernacle. I am a father of two. I am somebody who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and that has shaped a lot of who I am and a lot of how I do ministry and how I live my life. I'm newly graduated with my master's in social work, which, um, again, is part of who I am. Just the story to get there was a wonderful story for me, and it just shows God's redemption and God's faithfulness and His grace. So that's a little bit about who I am. Cool. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn for about 10 years of my life. So a lot of people who know me well, whenever they ask me a question, I always answer because I'm from the projects. And so being from the projects of Red Hook, Brooklyn, uh, that's South Brooklyn for anybody who knows the, the New York area. That was um, a very formative part of my life, especially like being a preteen there, trying to be a Christian in a community that was totally not Christian. I grew up seeing people deal drugs right in front of me. I grew up with gunshots as my bedtime story. It was just such a, a reality, the place that I lived. But I have to say the reason it shaped who I am is that was the reality of my existence. However, it was also very clear that God was with my family and with me and protecting me. I grew up in a Christian home. My mother and father were Christians. They taught us about Jesus Christ. We made decisions to follow Christ. And so even in a place that was very hard for somebody else and hard for us on the physical, we were always aware that God is protecting us. He's providing for us. My mother and father had nine kids. Wow. Yes, nine kids. And for them to be able to provide for a family of 11. And that was just on my father's salary because back then you really had to have a parent in the home. You couldn't have uh, kids raising themselves. So it was just amazing to see how God kept my family throughout those years. Wow. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that stands out to me is this faith that you were born into. What do you know of your parents' journey towards faith? My mom, she grew up also in the Christian home. She was serving God at a young age, and she was active in church and ministry. My dad was um, a reverend, but he kind of came to faith later on in life. I remember he used to tell us stories about how he used to smoke cigarettes, and he wasn't always, um, no one is always a Christian, but you know, he became a Christian later on in life. And he also was just a, a part of a reality where he had to kind of reconcile his faith to racism and understanding that just because some people were racist didn't mean that the world was racist and or that God was a racist God. So um, mm -hmm. I thank God for the balance between my mother and father and how one thing was for sure, you were going to understand who Jesus was in their home. That wasn't really an option for them. They wanted to make sure that their children, all nine of them, knew who Jesus Christ was. Wow. And where do you fit age-wise in the... In the I'm, the I'm the dirt oldest. I think they should have stopped after they had me, but for some reason they kept going. <laughs> they just kept going. Right. <laughs> what are the age range from... So this is the really weird part. From me down, we're all a year apart. 
My older brother is four years older than me. My oh, wow. older sister is two years older than me. And then for me, down with all the year apart. And then my mother and father actually had triplets. The triplets are the second to last. And then after the triplets, they also had they had a, a baby. So um, they're for me down, the six of us were a year apart. Wow. So I'm thinking of little James as a preteen. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm I'm thinking about this house that is centered on Christ and where you're learning about Jesus and learning how to not just love him, but I would imagine learning to trust him was a really big part of your yes. upbringing. And then the contrast between what you're experiencing inside your home and what you're seeing in front of you outside your home. Do you experience tension with that? Or like as a preteen, how do you remember reconciling that or thinking about it? It was really a lifeline. And I want to say this carefully because I don't want to give the pretense that, oh, you know, just because I'm a Christian, I was able to float through the fields of Red of Brooklyn. There, There were no fields. As a preteen, it was also difficult because I was often the only Christian in my class. And so it wasn't that I was unpopular, like because I can run and because like I I like to have fun with my friends. So I was accepted by the cool kids. But I was also my parents made sure that we were educated and that we participated in class and that we respected teachers. So I was also respected by the quote unquote nerds. So I had that balance, but I was teased for not necessarily for being a Christian, but for what being a Christian meant. So the things that I didn't do, the fact that I didn't curse, the shows that I didn't watch, the ways that I did not disrespect teachers, those were things that my peers thought was awkward or things to be made fun of. So that that was the tension, trying to and wanting to fit in, but also wanting to make my parents happy and also making God happy. And the dynamic for me, like when I was younger, I became a Christian at the age of four. When I was younger, I tried to be a good Christian because I knew that if I didn't, my father would find out and he would be happy. So my (laughs) Christianity was kind of an extension of my parents. But Mm. then as I got older, it became more of my relationship with God. And my parents were just trying to cultivate the relationship with God rather than me seeing my father as like, I better do it for him. Right. We talk about that a lot, even in preteen years, but what, yes. you know, that faith ownership moving yes. from taking on the faith of people around us to taking yes. on our own, own faith. Yes. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. So you said that was about 10 years of your life. Yes. And then what? Then we moved to a house. So God has a plan for everything and, and he works everything out well. I started working at, in an insurance company, a title insurance company. And a couple of years later, my mom started working in the same insurance company. Through the work that we did there and we getting to know like people and everything and the money that was raised to my mother and father, we were able to move into a house and we used our title insurance company as, you know, kind of a, a way to, to bring that all about. So we went from living in the projects to living in a beautiful suburban neighborhood. And it was just, it was totally different than the reality I lived in, in, in the projects. So now it wasn't um, the gunshots every night. It wasn't people selling drugs um, in front of me. It wasn't fear of, oh, no, what's going to happen if so-and-so is out too late, like when the fighting starts. Now it was, we were in a house. We have a backyard. We have a front porch. And so just being able to see that God brought my family from one reality to a new place where we're able to just experience things that other people had and things that we went without for so long. 
So that was great and that was awesome. But during that time now, I started becoming much more active in church. So I started to see now other people's issues. I started to see other people's hurts and hear other people's hurts. And that's when I got involved in the, the youth ministry as a youth. And so that's kind of what birthed my desire to want to be there for other people, because I found that as I became more active and I was able to, to see and hear and experience, people found it necessary to tell me or found it comfortable to tell me what was going on. And that kind of birthed who I am today, just being available to listen to other people. That doesn't surprise me at all, James. I mean, just what I have experienced from you as a friend, you just have this presence that eliminates any sort of pretense or barriers. You're just here and you're engaged and you present yourself as someone who is very emotionally safe to be with. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Okay. So then from there, you found yourself drawn towards social work. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. So, okay, (laughs) I found myself doing the social work and it was interesting just to see like, okay, so it's not just listening to people, but there's actually a way to do it. And there's actually a process by which you should go in order to be a social worker. The struggle that I had growing up, my family had growing up was financial. So I graduated out of high school in 1997. When I graduated, I went immediately to college and I stayed in college for about a year and a half. But I wasn't the wisest person financially. And so I stopped after a year and a half and I didn't go back to college for at least 10 years. That was really difficult for me because at the time I was now serving as a youth leader. So it's hard for me to encourage my youth to pursue college and to to be everything that God's called you to be. Where in the back of my mind, like James, like, what are you doing? You know, like, are you a hypocrite? That's kind of been my struggle the thoughts and the um, cognitive distortions. Before I even knew what that term was and what it meant, that's been kind of my struggle my entire life, just the battles that I have in my mind. I wanted to pursue social work, but I actually, (laughs) I needed social work for myself. um, And and I didn't even realize that I needed it. So there was a 10-year gap between when I started college and then I was able to go back and seriously pursue it because I was able to have money The way that God, um, and I I said this before, God orchestrates everything. The way that I got to obtain my bachelor's in social work, I had been serving as a youth leader for over 10 years, and I became acquainted with other youth leaders and head leaders, and everything was great. And then I really felt like God was like, hey, James, like it's time for you to go back to school. And at the time, I felt like God was calling me to go to a Christian college. It was funny because when I started going to college, people asked me if I would go to the Christian college. So like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. But I felt like God was calling me to go to this particular Christian college. And I went there. And so now it's a private school. It's really expensive. I go there. They say, your grades look good. Cause I, I'd be going as a chance student. They say, your grades look good. Your heart looks good for the Lord. We would love to have you. Now it's time to talk about payment. And so in the back of my mind, I said, okay, well, this is going to be where the red light comes in. Like I we, I went through this whole interview for nothing. And so I'm like, okay, well, I knew this was coming. And so they're talking to me and saying, okay, this is how much it costs. And they said, but you know, you are a ministry and you do, um, not only are you ministry, but you do serve in the, in, um, in this particular church with whom my school had like a, um, a kind of a, a deal going on. They took me to the person who was in charge of financial aid. And it just so happened that that woman who was in charge of financial aid also served with me as a youth leader in my particular church. Oh, wow. It was amazing. It was such a God moment. 
So they took me and we were looking over a banister onto her desk area. And they said, excuse me, we just want to know, like, um, what can we do for the student? And she looked up, she said, oh, James, I know him. Give him everything. And that was it. What? <laughs> exactly. That's what? exactly my, that was exactly my reaction. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Wow. That is incredible. Yes. That is absolutely incredible. So I wonder how did that affect your experience as a student? That's a great question. I knew that this was something that God wanted me to do. The fact that he got me into the school, the fact that he arranged for me to get the money I need to get into the school, and the fact that it was, it was just time. Like my schedule cleared up a bit. It was time for me to be serious. So I decided to pursue my education with aggression and, and with everything that I needed to pursue. It didn't just affect me that way, but I think I matured between the time that I started college and by the time that I graduated. Because when I started, college for me just needed to fit into my schedule. And I thought, well, you know, I'm busy doing ministry. I'm, I'm busy uh, being a good son. I'm being a good friend. College has to work the way I need it to work. And that's just not the way to come into a college education. But by the time I got the scholarship and went into my Christian college, I had matured and I realized that I needed an actual degree in order to be able to be effectual as a social worker. And so that's sure. what I did. You kind of glossed over this, but I want to come back to a comment you made earlier okay. that you went to school for social work, not realizing that you actually yes. needed to receive some social work. You also mentioned earlier how at the time you didn't have words or vocabulary to express some of the things that you had experienced. And yes. then you kind of learned that when you were in school. So can you talk a little bit more yes. about that? When I started taking my major social work classes, I had a wonderful, brilliant professor that really touched my life. And he said on his first day, the best social workers have a social worker. Mm. And he said, and, and that social worker is not going to be somebody within your organization. You need to have somebody that you can speak to outside of your organization that will tell you the truth. That just struck me. I was like, oh, Okay, I, I didn't realize that, that was necessary, but it makes sense. Then as I started to reflect, I'm like, well, yeah, I, I could definitely use that. What that did for me is allowed me to not feel like I need to present myself as perfect to everyone in order to be effective. Right. And more importantly, God never wrote down that perfection is a ministry requirement or even a job requirement as I have a, a job at the church. Mm -hmm. God, God wants me. And I, I know that you speak a lot about being your authentic self. And that's what I need to do for myself, because otherwise I was cheating myself out of getting the proper help and education and resources that I need, because I thought that people expected me to be perfect when in reality they really don't. And also, I thought that God expected me to be perfect and he doesn't expect you to be perfect. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. But he also knows that it's a work that we're working towards that we'll eventually receive in heaven. So being able to hear that I needed help and I wasn't expected to fix myself and to counsel myself and to just be perfect in all of my situations, that freed me to be human, to be relatable and to be even more helpful to my family, friends and my colleagues as I pursue my uh, education. Oh, and I'm so glad. Being the truest version of yourself, that is such a gift because we are whole beings. Yes. 
we're not just the good or just the things that we choose that we want to present. We are right. all these nuances are part of who we are. We are a gift. You yes. are a gift. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you learned that at an early age. Now, I know the years since that have had quite a journey for you. Yes. If you don't mind, share a little bit about that. So I got married in 2008. I felt like it was God. I married a woman who uh, was um, a single mom. She and I, we served together in different ministries in the church. And it was great. We had a great time. Her son and I got along really well. I've heard nightmare stories of stepson, stepfather relationships. And that was never our case. Her family accepted me. In fact, my oldest son's biological dad, that family also accepted me because they saw how I treated him. So it was just wonderful. But eventually, uh, we ran for almost 12 years and then we started to drift apart. Part of the reason was financial, but then just like our values and things that we saw and things that were important to us differed. And it differed so far away from each other that um, in 2019, she told me that she wanted to separate and that it would probably lead to divorce. That was just such a bomb for me. Like, I, I can't express to you, I felt like such a failure because we weren't happy, but I was so willing up until that point to work to make us happy. Like, I wanted to go to therapy, I wanted to do this. Like, I was fighting for the marriage and I, mm-hmm. I just didn't expect for those words to come out of her mouth. Yeah. This is probably not important at all, but this decision took place on June 1st. And on the 9th of that month, I had my 10th preteen retreat. We had all the stops planned because this is our 10th one. And I was like, why would you tell me this at all? And this be a final conversation, the first and final conversation. And then why would you tell me this right before this retreat? So again, that's probably like the wrong thought. But it's just like, this is what's going through my mind. It's like, my my family's falling apart and there's nothing that I can do. Yeah, and you're supposed to be in this season of celebration. Right, right. why all of a sudden is this happening? Yes. Yeah, sounds like you were very surprised. I definitely was. And I was hurt and I was angry. You know, I'm glad actually that you and I are doing this podcast today because when I spoke to you about it, I think even when I was talking to you then, I was still hurt. But I realized that God has really helped me to grow and to learn from this experience. And I'm trying to be very careful because I I don't know who might hear this. The one thing that I can truly thank God for is that my ex-wife and I, we get along really, really well. One thing is we have a biological son between the two of us. And so we co-parent him really well. He stays with her for one week and he stays with me for one week. And so he goes back and forth to our homes every other week. There's absolutely no like animosity when I either go pick him up or drop him off. She's constantly calling me or texting me saying, hey, could you pray about this? Could you pray about that? What does relate to her job? And the thing that I love a lot is that my oldest son, which is again, he was my son through marriage. He and I still have a very, very close relationship. And he's mm-hmm. still texting me and calling me and, and asking me for advice. I thank God that that's how this ended up. Although I wish this is not how it ended up, if that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, but there are a lot of different directions that a divorce can go in. And this seems like one that is very good for your children and very good for the both of you. Now, it's not lost on me that this revelation that (laughs) that your marriage (laughs) is coming to an end (laughs) happens about 
six, seven months before the whole world shut down. Yes. Yes. And I wonder what that was like for you. When she told me that she wanted to separate, I spent a long hour in conversation with her trying to change her mind. When I realized that that wasn't going to work, I was just walking around in a daze. I remember sitting in my office and I thought for some reason about going back to school for my master's. The reason the thought came to me is that I had wanted to go back earlier than that point. But because my ex-wife, she's extremely busy. Um, she has a great job. Because of that, I kind of need to be the one to pick up our kids and arrange her things most days of the week. So I couldn't go to school because the social work days at the school were specific days. And those are days that I definitely need to be home. When I called the school and I was like, wait, if we're separated and at that time, she was going to have our son Monday to Thursday, and I was going to have him Friday to Sunday. So I was like, well, if she has him Monday to Thursday, then I can't go to school. And so I called the school, and I had been talking to somebody for a year and a half trying to see when I, how I can get in. And I said, well, now my schedule is clear. I said, like, can I apply? And she said, yes. Yeah. So within two weeks, I applied, had my classes, paid classes paid for, and was ready to start my, for my, my study program. Yes. Wow. Um, but I say that, though, because when I started in 2019, that's what I was focused on. I was focused on school and the classes that I was taking. I took some very pointed and very um, clinical classes. So mm -hmm. most of my first year was just focused on me healing as I'm learning to win my yeah. degree. You started at the beginning of 2019 or 2020? 2019. Okay. So then the pandemic wasn't an issue until at least in New York until like March, 2020. And so that was like, that's like, oh, okay. Now I'm seeing these people are suffering. These people are suffering. So God helped me to take what I was learning, take what I was feeling as far as my family, take what I was responsible for at the church and really focus on him guiding me through each of these different areas. So as not to experience burnout, and he really helped me to be who he needed me to be at that time. I say that because um, it's amazing when, like, we're talking about being your true authentic self and not present like everything's perfect. I was noticing that certain youth were just, like, really becoming despondent or certain preachers becoming despondent. And I would reach out to their parent and say, hey, like, I noticed that this certain thing, this person is um, just kind of despondent. Like, is there any way I can pray? What can I do? And they would say, one, one father said, well, you know what, to be perfectly honest, he's, he's acting that way because my wife and I just got divorced. Mm. And, he said, and he said, like, you know, like, I, I know you probably don't know what that's like, what to say now. And I said, well, to tell you the truth, <laughs> my wife and I just got divorced. And so that opened up not just ministry to his son, but now ministry to him. Mm -hmm. And so God was just really opening doors where my reality, my hurts, my pains, that God was healing and taking care of was helping me now to be real and be even more empathetic to people who were facing the situation during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I happen to know that you finished your master's degree. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that was amazing. That is, yeah, no, that is that is just fantastic. I mean, you, I've, I've always been cheering you on through yes. through all of that. I know that working at the church while you were in the middle of the separation and ultimately divorce was quite a challenge. Yes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I do. Like I said, my ex-wife and I, we served in many ministries together. So we had a lot of mutual friends. 
And again, I think this is where I'm glad growth took place. When the separation happened, at first, I didn't tell anybody because my ex-wife didn't want anybody to know. She felt like it's no one's business. This is just between you and me. And so it was difficult for me because people kept saying, oh, you know, how's, how is she? How is she? Like, where is she? Do you want to go do things together? Like the, the four of us. And I couldn't tell them because I was trying to respect her wishes. And then I also felt like if people realized that this is where my marriage ended up, that that would discredit me from being a priest and director or eventually mm-hmm. a youth director. And, and again, that's why I, I want to encourage anybody who's listening Perfection is never a ministry requirement or a job requirement at, at the church. You do have to live by a certain standard. And we see how Paul charges uh, Timothy and, and you, know, there, you, you can't live any crazy way. But if you feel like you have to be 100% perfect, that's not a reality that God has called you to. And you're going to discount yourself from being effective in ministry or just even being a good brother and a, or a good sister and a good friend if you close doors that God wants open because you think that your mistakes have discounted you from ministry. Oh, for sure. And sometimes it's our wounds that qualify us. Yes, yes. That, you know, they, I love um, Nowen's book, The the Wounded Healer. I think we all fall into that category in, in different ways. Yes. But your story has always stood out to me as just this remarkable story of hurt, but Mm -hmm. also just tremendous grace. I always come back to the name of this podcast, Grace in Real Time. Even just hearing you share over the last half an hour or so, you can see these fingerprints of God's presence in your life and calling you deeper still. Yes. In the midst of all these different things that are going on, and they're all shaping you to where you are today yes. um, and what, what you can offer to conversation, what your heart can offer, what your presence, just your very presence can offer, which is just so beautiful. Thank you. I'm glad that I learned that my friends don't feel like they need to pick sides. It is possible mm-hmm. for them to be friends to both my ex-wife and me. But the, you know, the best way that that happens is because my ex-wife and I are still friends. Sure. And so we make it easier for them to say, okay, well, I'll be with her for whatever event. And okay, I'll be with you for whatever event. It doesn't have to be awkward for them. Yeah. I would imagine that takes quite a bit of mental strength to get to that place. <laughs> it does. It does. It definitely <laughs> does. It takes maturity. It takes grace. It takes prayer. It takes mental strength. It takes being emotionally healthy and it takes being honest. Like when you are struggling and when you are saying, you know what, I, I feel angry, I feel hurt. You have to be able to communicate that to someone. My immediate overseeing pastor, he was aware from the beginning and he talked me through when I was feeling upset and I prayed and I talked to God about it. And so God replaced the anger and he also helped me to let go of things that I just wasn't going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you feel like in order for me to be better, I need to hear this or I need to get that. We want to write the prescription for exactly, better. <laughs> exactly. But sometimes you're just not going to get that. Sometimes right. the, the other part person in the, in the party is not going to conform to your prescription plan. Right. And God has to help you to say, you know what, that's going to be okay. You don't need that in order to experience my grace. Yeah, Absolutely. 
I think that's one of the ways that I'm so thankful that God is God and yes. I'm not. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. You know, and, and one of those places where, I mean, like I said, even in your earliest years, you learned what it really means to trust yes. God. Yes, I and I can imagine that that has shaped your ability to stand where you are now and say very similar things. Yes, definitely. God has been faithful my entire life. There's no one or nothing that can be said or done to get me to a place where I'm ever going to say God is not real or where is God. I acknowledge that I have gone through some really, really hard times, and I know that hard times will come in the future. But I am confident and I stand on this fact that through every single hard time, God is with me and he will either see me through it or he'll take me out of it because he has a perfect track record in my life. Mm. Oh, to have the faith of James. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. I wonder now, you've worked with youth for a long time, and I know yes. you have a special heart for preteens. And I wonder, taking your life experiences and what you've experienced with these kids, what do you wish the church understood about these kids, about mental health, about this journey towards emotional health and, uh, and all of that? What do, what do you wish the church knew? I wish that the church understood that children are also experiencing traumas and yet they don't have the just the maturity of age and life experience to deal with them the way that adults do. Because that's true, they need to be loved on, but they also need to be exposed to resources and their parents need to be exposed to resources that will help them to get through and to heal from these traumas. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And what does what does that look like in your life in terms of resources? Like who's in your boat? Who's, you know, what are what do you what do you do for your care and keeping? I have a prayer group of brothers that I pray with every Sunday. We've been doing this for nine years. Every Sunday we mm. do that. And then I have another very close friend that I pray with on every Monday night. That takes care of the spiritual. But then I also have close relationships with my NIAC professors. And so there, there are one or two of them that I can just say, hey, listen, like this is what I'm going through or this is what I was thinking. How do I navigate through that? So I have brothers that I pray with. I have pastors that I speak to. And then I have on the social work, like to get my social work in for myself. I have my professor at night that I can reach out to. Yeah, that's remarkable. Each of these are caring for mind, body, soul, yes. you know, yes. strength, all, all, of, all of it. Um, yes. That's, in, that's incredible. I love like to be active. Like, um, just it's good to walk, to jog, to dance. Um, I'm, I also love to read. One last thing that I just learned, but it's really been helping me. I've been taking the Sabbath. I know that's something that um, uh, you talked about in uh, episode two. Yeah. And Michaela talks about that a lot, too. Yes. So I it's not easy yet. <laughs> I have to really be intentional, but I do definitely need to turn off because like I mentioned, I'm the new youth director in my church, but I'm still the preaching director. So I have all of those situations and then all of the youth situations. And then I have friends with whom, uh, like friends who call me, like, listen, James, this is what I'm going through. And I don't mind any of it. Like, I, I, that's what I'm here for. But if I don't take a moment to get alone with God and just to rest and not try to be there to help and to figure out and to do this, I'm not going to be good to anybody. 
So the key thing that I would tell to everybody is pray and ask God to show you how and when to Sabbath and just to take time for yourself to do things that you enjoy, to get along with God, because you will burn out very quickly if you don't do that for yourself. Those are such wise words. That has been a common theme. It just blows me away how many of the people that I've interviewed over time come back to this who's in your boat and come back to Sabbath and being such a key piece of what it means to care and keep ourselves. And what stands out to me about that is that is the the Sabbath piece keeps you connected to God, right? And keeps you grounded. And the who's in your boat piece is community. It's the, you know, it's the mutual shaping and knowing that you can't do this alone. And so often God chooses to work through people. So I I just love that you've got both sides of that coin (laughs) in place. And I, I think those are such wise words, James. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there anything else you want to tell us? <laughs> I'm so grateful to have been a part of this. Thank you so much. I started listening recently to your podcast and it's doing a lot for me. I just had many more. So like, That's so good. I'm going to start that right now. <laughs> it's just been really, really good. So thank you so yeah. much. And I, I'm excited to see what God is going to continue to do through this podcast and through preaching ministry and everything else. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, James. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, James is a really interesting guy. Some great stories to tell and a lot of intense experiences that he's gone through, especially in the last couple of years. I'm glad he opened up to you. That interview was conducted over Zoom, right? It was. Yeah. I'm sure you're really excited to meet him in person because all you've ever experienced of him is over these Zoom calls, right? Yeah, it's so funny. We're both part of the 456 advisory team for 456.org, and we meet monthly, sometimes more. We've even taught online conferences together. Uh, We even taught a particular breakout together where we teamed up and planned a curriculum and a presentation together and then presented it. And so I feel like I know him, but we've never met in person. It's just so such a bizarre thing. Right. I have to admit, though, when I first met him and heard that he worked at Brooklyn Tabernacle, I was a little starstruck because I was thinking, oh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, which is so lovely and pretty popular. I got very excited. Well, you know, the whole concept of meeting over Zoom is so new to a lot of us, but I think we've gotten used to it over the last couple of years. We've been forced to. Right. In all of the things that we used to meet in person, we've been forced to meet on our laptops (laughs) and see each other looking at a screen. And so it'll be interesting, I think, over the next year, if things continue to go the way they've been going and things open up and we were able to meet in person more, you know, you're going to be able to see your doctor. Right. <laughs> You're going to be able to talk to a therapist in the right. same room right. instead of over a laptop and looking at a screen. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about that with a therapist lately because when this pandemic first started, I needed to see a therapist pretty quickly. Some things came to head in my own anxiety that I needed to work on pretty quick. And so I sought out therapy And because we were already shut down, I met my therapist online and all of our conversations were online. I've never actually met her in person. And the same is true for my psychiatrist that helps me with my anxiety medication. I've never met them in person. It's such an interesting dynamic. On one sense, it's nice to 
be in your own home and your own space. And it certainly is convenient. But when you live in a house with other people, you don't have the privacy that you would if you were sitting in their office. Same with the doctor. We wouldn't have the same privacy. And it's just a different experience. And I know people who have wanted therapy and needed therapy, but the barrier for them to getting therapy was that they wanted to meet somebody in person and they couldn't do that during the pandemic. And so they didn't. Most of my doctor's appointments have been online. I've only seen my doctor maybe twice in the last two years in person. Right. I think it's been a couple of years since I actually saw my doctor. And the doctor that I had, the primary doctor, she retired. Right. So I haven't met my new doctor yet. Right. (laughs) I think a lot of people who have been able to go without have just chosen to go without. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because then you think about the church overall. I mean, I saw churches pretty quickly pivot to online churches and online Kids Sunday. And, you know, all of a sudden we're televangelists and we're (laughs) creating video content for kids. And now we're at a point where we're regathering. And it's interesting to see who is coming in person. At our church, we still have an option. You can come in person or you can watch online. And we still have quite a few people who are choosing to watch online for various reasons. And yet, when we meet in person, there is something so special that happens that can't be matched when you're trying to duplicate it online. I even heard recently about a church group that was being formed in a virtual reality setting, a VR church. And I just, I've got all sorts of flags <laughs> going up on that in terms of, I mean, I'm sure, sure it's very well intended, but it just seems to be missing something really, really, really important there. Yeah, the human connection. I mean, I'm sure you can build community somewhat in that virtual space. But what you're missing is people's actual human faces Mm -hmm. and reactions. And Mm -hmm. there's just a different energy when you're in the same room with people. Right. Well, you even think about, you know, when you're online, you can represent what you want to represent. Right. When you're in person, you still can represent what you want to represent. But the hope is that you're bringing your most authentic self to each other. And that's the gift we are to each other. And that's one of the ways that we worship God is by interacting with each other, with with love in our hearts and Christ in our heart. Right. Well, before we end today, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the more intense parts of James's conversation with you. Yeah. He's gone through some pretty intense and emotional experiences over the last couple of years, um, being separated from his wife and then getting a divorce. And they have a child together and he has a stepson that by God's grace, they are all in relationship together and still what he said, you know, he's friends with his ex-wife and that's just amazing. But to go through all of that in the last couple of years, in addition to COVID and Black Lives Matter and everything that was surrounding racial issues that bubbled up. Right. It's amazing to me that he can sit and talk with such grace and gratefulness Mm -hmm. and he can see how God has worked in his life to bring him to where he is now. Yeah. And to speak with such deep love for people. I think that's amazing. I think it's a testament to his parents raising him, especially given the circumstances that a good chunk of his childhood, especially his formative years, were in a situation that can be quite traumatic for a kiddo. 
And yet he grew in love with Jesus over all of those years and continues to this day to testify and to bear witness to God's faithfulness. Oh my gosh. I absolutely have to believe that he has the gift of faith. (laughs) Yep. Because he reiterated towards the end of the conversation, God has been faithful his entire life and he's confident that God is with him and will see him through anything. Yeah. And that's just amazing. Before I met you, I was in a relationship and I was married and I got divorced. And I remember how that destroyed me. Hmm. And I was just so beaten down for a good year and a half after that. Yeah. And so for James to come through that, in addition to all the stuff that was happening, is just amazing. Yeah. For him to be able to this quickly look back and see how God carried him through is amazing. Yeah. I'm just really blown away by that. Yeah. I do know him well enough to know that this isn't just lip service. This isn't just saying the thing that podcast listeners would want to hear or what he wants to be true. This is actually his most authentic self sharing that faith and that just complete trust that God is who he says he is and he's doing what he says he's doing. There's a couple of themes that came up and that's been coming up in all the conversations you've been having. He's gone through these experiences. He now has a story to tell Mm -hmm. and he knows that he needs to tell his story in order to be able to help others that are going through something similar and to have empathy for those people. Right. It's so hard to speak up, especially when part of the story is um, rooted in such deep pain or hurt or things that we might have stigmas attached to. I mean, divorce often has a stigma attached to it, especially in churches. And then all the feelings and emotions that go with it. You know, he talked about feelings of failure, feelings of depression, being really hurt and sad and in pain. And yet these experiences are part of the human experience. And the more that we share these stories out loud, the more others understand that they're not alone in their suffering and in their pain but that we can stand together and the pain doesn't magically go away, but we can stand together in solidarity, knowing that when we do so authentically, we're doing it for the sake of others, which again, brings glory to God. Absolutely. Well, Paula, wrap us up here. This is the season finale, but tell us what's coming next for the Grace in Real Time podcast. Oh, this may be the finale for season one, but believe me, season two is right around the corner and we already have some fantastic conversations lined up for you. If you have been enjoying this podcast, I encourage you, please tell your friends, post it on social media, leave a comment, send it to your grandma. Help us get the word out and let others know that there are stories and conversations here that might be helpful to help get rid of the stigma, help foster this idea of bringing our most authentic selves to community. It's been so good to be with you. We'll be back soon. And in the meantime, be kind to yourself. And remember, keep your eyes open because there is always grace to be found. Listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast with your host, Paula Mazza. If you'd like to get in touch with Paula, 
send an email to paula at preteenmentalhealth.com. For more information on the Preteen Mental Health Initiative, the Grace in Real Time podcast, and to get connected to mental health resources, please visit our website, preteenmentalhealth.com. Thank you.